right, open up your Bibles to Jonah <clears throat> chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, we left off in verses, uh, with verse 8, and we're going to cover verses 8 through 10 this evening. And the title is, Jonah Yields to God's Will. Jonah Yields to God's Will. Now, here in beginning in verse 8, Jonah admits <clears throat> that there were idols in his life. Idols that robbed him of the blessings of God. Now, an idol is anything that takes away from God the affection and obedience that rightly belongs to only Him. One such idol was Jonah's intense loyalty. Not to the Lord, but to himself. Jonah was so concerned about the safety and prosperity of his own nation that he refused to be God's messenger to their enemies, the Assyrians. And we learned early on from chapter 4, verse 2, that Jonah was also protecting his own reputation. Because if, he, because if God spared Nineveh, then Jonah would be called a false prophet because his words of warning weren't fulfilled. And because, because for somebody who was famous for his prophecies, this would be damaging. You know, you go out and you prophesy in the name of the Lord, it comes to pass, and now when he goes out and he doesn't warn the Assyrians, and the judgment doesn't come to pass, it would be damaging to his reputation. So Jonah closes his prayer here in chapter 2 by making some sincere vows to the Lord, vows that he really intended to keep. Like the psalmist, he said in Psalm 66, 13 and 14, I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Jonah promised to worship God in the temple with sacrifices and songs of thanksgiving. Now he doesn't tell us what other promises that he made to the Lord. But one of them surely was, I will go to Nineveh and declare your messages if you give me another chance. Jonah could not save himself and nobody on earth could save Jonah except for the Lord. Because as verse 2-9 says, salvation is of the Lord. Only God can save. And this is a quotation from Psalm 3-8 and Psalm 37-39. And it's the main statement, again, salvation is the Lord, it's the main statement <clears throat> in the book of Jonah. It's also the main theme of the Bible. It was really wise for Jonah to memorize the Word of God, and that's why it's so important you hear from us all the time to know the Word of God, to read the Word of God. Because being able to quote the Scriptures, especially the book of Psalms, gave Jonah the light in the darkness. It gave him hope in what seemed like a hopeless situation. And Jonah ends his prayer in the fish's belly. That prayer started in verse 1. And he, and he finishes this prayer with some very clear statements or declarations. It's as if Jonah was practicing some of his sermons in his prayer because these statements are without a doubt great sermons in themselves. And being a part of Jonah's prayer, these statements point out an important truth about prayer. And that is, prayer is not all petition. Or prayer is not all asking. 
And a lot of times when we go to prayer, it's about asking. And we kind of pull out this laundry list. Lord, give me this. I need this. I need this. I need this. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, because it does, it does tell us to make our supplications and our petitions to Him. But when it's always God give me, or I'm always asking for something, again, that's not all there is to prayer. Petition can be a part of prayer. But you don't have to have petition in order to be praying. Prayer is communication with God, and such communication may involve thanksgiving. We can go to God in prayer and just thank Him. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for taking care of me. Thank you for the things that I have. Thank you, Lord, for, for all the things. And Hey, we can give thanks all day long. Thanksgiving is also, like I said, it, it's a prayer as well as supplication. Praise is another prayer that we can come before we can come before him and pray and just praise him for his goodness and his grace and his mercies and his faithfulness and also confirmation of God's ways is another prayer that we can come to him and and bring before him as well as petition we make a big mistake and we limit the fruit the uh, fruitfulness of our prayer if we limit prayers to simply coming and asking for something And Jonah's prayer here involves a lot more than asking. Jonah makes four statements at the end of his prayer that involve things like confession, praise, thanksgiving, confirmation, and commitment. And these are all things that can be just as much a part of prayer as petition or asking. So let's begin now in chapter 2 with verse 8. And it says, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy so the first statement that jonah makes here had to do with worthless idols now in the in the king james version worthless idols is called is phrased lying vanities they're both the same thing worthless idols or lying vanities so these worthless idols or these lying vanities are philosophical inventions They're foolish fantasies. Now, what are worthless idols? They are worthless, lying vanities by which men seduce themselves. They they, they deceive themselves. Vanities are excessive pride in or admiration of one's own appearance or achievements. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, notice he says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. An idol is nothing more than the creation of men's imagination. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, Paul said, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols have some, has some significance? Or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons and not God. Idols, Paul said, were demons. They're clever but they corrupt beliefs. They're created by those who are disobedient to justify their disobedience. They're just foolish fantasies of the disobedient, which causes them to think that their disobedience, hey, no problem. It's going to turn out well for me in the end. They're deceiving doctrines of the wrongdoer 
that promise reward for their, degrada- for their, degrada- uh, deg- their degradation. But instead, it produces great ruin. You see, their, their depraved logic, which gives values that are exaggerated, they're not true to the things of the flesh, while giving little or no value to the things of the Spirit. So this part of Jonah's prayer is about worthless idols or lying vanities, whichever you want to call them. I'm going to just call them lying vanities. So they, you know, these, this part of Jonah's prayer about lying vanities represents a confession by Jonah because he had perished, uh, persisted in following some lying vanities in his disobedience when he fled from the presence of God. And he found out the hard way that they led, these lying vanities led to a dead and terrible end. All right, the first lying vanity that we mentioned, which Jonah followed, had to do with revenge. It says you can get away with it, but that's a deceitful philosophy. And yet many accept this this deceitful philosophy, even though others have been killed by it. And yet many confidently listen to the deceiver, tell them, you're not going to get caught. You're not going to get caught. Don't worry about it. It will be different for you. That's what these, this, this line vanity tells them. You'll be the exception. No one will even notice you. And you won't suffer any payback for your evil deeds. But Jonah was found out and he did pay for his sin. All other sinners will someday also have to acknowledge that it's nothing but a lie that says you can sin and get away with it. Numbers 32, 23 says, Then take note, you have sinned against the Lord and your sin will find you out. A second line vanity that Jonah observed dealt with reality. It ignores reality. It says ignore reality. It won't bother you. If you do this, don't worry about it. It won't bother you. Jonah was fast asleep in the ship. Remember, in the bottom of the ship, when a great storm came upon him. And he just snored away while the storm was going on. He ignored reality. He kept on sleeping. But ignoring reality is the worst way to deal with it. Ignoring reality will not change the facts of life. You have to recognize reality and you have to deal with it in the right way or it will destroy you. And you must especially not ignore the reality that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And that's a serious statement made in Hebrews 9.27. It's a reality of life. And by, by, by ignoring it... <clears throat> And thinking, well, you know, that nothing's going to happen, that's foolish. Because it is appointed. There is an appointed time that you and I are going to die. But after we do, then it's going to come the judgment. Am I going to spend it, my, my, my eternity in heaven or hell? And if you try to just ignore that, if you just, you know, kind of stick your head in the sand and try to ignore this fact, you'll spend eternity in hell. Then there's a third line vanity that Jonah foolishly followed, and that concerned responsibility. 
You see, it was the lie that you can run away from your responsibilities of life and you can still enjoy the privileges of life, the good times. Now, Jonah was a prophet. And he had the responsibility to go where God sent him. As we as Christians, we have the responsibility to do what God tells us, to go where he sends us, to stop when he tells us to stop. Jonah had the responsibility to go where God sent him and to deliver the message that God gave him. But Jonah didn't want to do it. He refused to do that, to give the message of God when it came to Nineveh. He walked away from his responsibilities. But as a result, he soon lost some privileges. One privilege that he lost, which sums it up and illustrates all of his privilege that he's, uh, privileges that he lost, was his privilege as a passenger on the boat. What a great loss that was in his case. He was thrown overboard. But when we forsake our responsibilities, we lose our privileges as a result. Privilege only comes with responsibility. For example, you want the privilege of a paycheck? Hey, you must assume the responsibilities of work. You can't turn away from the responsibility of study if you want the privilege of happiness. You must not forsake the responsibility of keeping yourself holy. There are a lot of other lying vanities in our day besides those that Jonas you know, practiced here. And these lying vanities, man, they, boy, they are attractive to the flesh. We love them. And these lying vanities that our flesh loves, they influence so many people. Such as religious creed. This is a a big one. This is a big lying vanity. In religion, a lot of people follow the lying vanity that says all roads lead to heaven. But all roads don't lead to heaven. And not all religions save. Only Jesus saves. And that's why people don't like to hear that, that, that Jesus saves. You may have heard, I think it was last week, this, this, and I can't remember what, where it was, but it's this man wore this t-shirt into a mall, and it said, only Jesus saves. Somebody complained to one of the security guards about this man wearing the t-shirt because it offended them. Well, if all roads lead to heaven, why would that offend you? You see, that's a truth that sinks down deep into people's hearts. They want to believe it, but do they really? Well, not if it offends them. You would think, oh, that's cool. That guy's going to heaven because he believes Jesus. You know, I'm cool because I believe in, in whoever. I'm going to heaven too. We're both going to heaven. But no, he complained to security, and they, were, they, they, they made the man leave the mall, take off the T-shirt or leave the mall. Because only Jesus saves. The lying vanity in our day that people think, hey, you know, all roads lead to heaven. doesn't matter who I believe in or what I believe as long as I believe. So again, they're, they're, they're very attractive to the flesh. Another line vanity that many people love has to do with perception. In other words, what you don't know won't hurt you. How many times have we heard that? In other words, if you're not aware of it, it won't hurt you. And some people say, hey, don't tell me because if I don't know, I'm not responsible for it. 
And this deceitful and stupid belief is often used to excuse a person from those learning experiences, especially that are essential to their soul, to their salvation. But what you don't know really can hurt you. Take the wrong medicine out of ignorance, and you know what? It can still kill you. It can still kill you. And many people today would justify the way they behave and the way they live with the line vanity that that concerns conformity. Boy, that's a big one today. And man, are people being pressured to conform to the ways of the world, which is a bogus philosophy. How foolish it would be to insist that if everybody is destroying their, their uprightness through alcohol and drugs, that you should do it too. But they are. You know, you're, we're labeled as bigots and haters. You know, we have phobias of all kind because we don't agree with the, with the, the popular ideas and ways of the world. What did Paul say? Do not, do not be conformed. Again, that's a command. Paul's not not asking or suggesting. He says, do not be conformed. It means to be conformed to the same pattern. Do not be conformed to this world. Speaking of its ways. Others encourage immorality by the line vanity of comfort that says, A, have we've all heard, if it feels good, do it. And boy, this is so popular to the flesh. But that idea works just the opposite. When you do it, it won't feel good. It brings all kinds of, kinds of unpleasant emotions and feelings, like unbearable guilt that doesn't feel good at all. Lying vanities are very destructive, as we've seen some of them here with Jonah. And Jonah sums up the great harm done by listening to the lying vanities when he says those who listen to them, in verse 8, says, notice, forsake their own mercy. When you listen to those lying vanities, you forsake your own mercy. This means they will give up the mercy that God intends for them. We have to have God's mercy or we'll perish. And to follow lying vanities is to be cruel to yourself. And the world would have you think that following the clever philosophies of corrupt, corrupt men will bring you so much enjoyment. But it's a lie. You do just the opposite. You take away mercy and you inflict a lot of cruelty instead. You might gain respect. You might increase your riches. You might get a lot of fleshly pleasure by following these lying vanities, but nothing that you can gain will ever make up for what you lose. And forsaking your own mercy cancels out the advantage of any gain that you might obtain from evil. I mean, what a price Jonah paid in following these lying vanities, these worthless idols. And his short-term success, you know, he, he thought he was doing well and he thought he was doing right and he thought he would have success it was short term because soon after that 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 he believed these lying vanities he lost all the satisfaction and pleasure that he thought his rebellion would bring him all of this tells us that we have to build our life on truth 
heavenly truth. And what is heavenly truth? It is the Word of God. Not on men's lies or men's philosophies. We need to build something, build on something that lasts. Something that won't deceive us. Something that won't shortchange us. Something that won't rip us off. God's Word is the one foundation that won't fail. If Jonah would have let God's Word control his thinking, he could have avoided so much of his troubles. And that's with all of us. If we just allow God's Word to control our thinking, thus controlling our lives, the things we do, we could avoid so much trouble. But like a lot of people down through the ages, Jonah let other things besides the Word of God control his life. Everyone is controlled by some philosophy or other in life. A person might not be able to explain in detail those philosophies that they're building their life on. But here's the thing, that doesn't stop them from following vain philosophies of life. And too many times what controls a man's actions, like in Jonah's case, falls into the category of lying vanities rather than divine truth, God's word. Because lying vanities are often so much more attractive to the flesh than the truth. That's the way it was with Jonah for a while anyway. But truth must guide every action, everything that we do, or we'll forsake God's mercy and we'll destroy ourselves. We'll mess up big time. Truth and mercy are inseparable. Psalm 85.10 says, Mercy and truth have met together. But if you continue to live on a foundation of lies, one day you'll be in a place where mercy no longer exists. Then Joseph's, I'm sorry, uh, Jonah's second statement speaks of sacrifice. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> he says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. No one will ever have a right relationship with God until he or she learns the place of sacrifice in the relationship. Because without sacrifice, Man can never experience a good relationship with God. This is true in salvation and service. The, The first sacrifice that we need in establishing a proper relationship with God is the one that God made when he gave his son Jesus Christ to die on Calvary's cross for our sins. And apart from that sacrifice, man can never have an acceptable relationship with God. He can never be saved. The offering up of Jesus opens up the door for man to have his sins forgiven and to enter into an eternal relationship with God as his child. And it's the most important relationship of all. And it only comes through the greatest of all sacrifice, Jesus Christ on Calvary. And man has to recognize and accept this sacrifice as the way of salvation or he will never have the relationship with God that guarantees eternal life in heaven. Sacrifice is also necessary for service, especially when Jonah said, I will sacrifice to you. Our service to God depends on sacrifice. 
And many times that's what makes it so difficult, isn't it? I don't want to sacrifice this or that. But when it comes to service, unlike salvation, sacrifice is mainly man's responsibility, not God's. When Jonah refused to go to Nineveh, Jonah had, had man, he failed big time to serve God because he wasn't willing to sacrifice for God. He would sacrifice for himself. We, oh, we'll do that. We'll easily sacrifice for ourselves. Jonah gave up time. He gave up effort. He gave up money. But it was to pursue a journey to Tarshish. You know, he made the time to go to catch the ship. He paid the fare. But he wouldn't do that to do God's will. Jonah wouldn't sacrifice his will. He wouldn't sacrifice his interests. He wouldn't sacrifice his reputation to go to Nineveh. So he failed to serve God. But now... His prayer shows us that he has a much different attitude in his heart. He's willing to sacrifice to God, and God can use men and women like that in his service. That's who God's looking for. People who are willing to sacrifice their time, their interests, their efforts for God. Unwillingness to sacrifice is one of the biggest hindrances to serving God. And it's why so few people can be counted on in church to serve well. People just aren't willing to put themselves out for God. They're like Jonah in his disobedience. Now, we don't hesitate, man, to put out for ourselves. Man, you can get me up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go fishing in the freezing cold. I've done it before. But think of getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to, you know, clean the church or whatever else it might be. No, I'll, I'll just stay in my warm little bed. But again, we will spend and be spent for our own personal interests. But the sacrifice for God, man, that's, that's strange to a lot of people. And it shows up time and time again, this lack of sacrifice in our giving. People may give uh, and they may even tithe. But they still don't sacrifice. They're giving of themselves. A lot of people today probably don't know that the standard of giving is not the tithe, which means the tenth, but sacrifice. But again, this, is, this isn't about money. It's the principle that we're talking about, about the sacrifice. But money is an example. It would definitely be a great improvement for a lot of church members if they simply started to tithe, just give a tenth. But again, the, time, the tithe is not the rule. Sacrifice is the rule behind giving, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's energy, effort, whatever it might be. Jesus powerfully and convincingly drove home this truth when he was in the temple. Remember with his, with his disciples? And he was watching the people put their offering in the treasury. He said, man, the rich put in a lot. 
But when the widow put in her two mites, Jesus said, that woman, that poor widow, put more into the treasury than the rich. Why? Because she gave all that she had. She sacrificed. The rich didn't. The others gave out of their abundance, but she gave from all of her livelihood. And it's enlightening to mention that the Old Testament doesn't stop at the tithe when, when it speaks of giving. We don't have any biblical support for only giving the tithe, the tenth, making it the principle for giving. Plus, making the tithe the principle for giving doesn't show equity for, any, for everyone. A man who makes $1,000 a week has to give only 100 bucks to tithe, leaving him with 900 But a man who makes $100 a week has to give 10 the tithe, but only has 90 left to live on. The tithe is $10 dollars. Uh, the, the tithe of $10 will be a sacrifice for this man compared to the man who makes 1000 So where's the fairness in making the poor sacrifice but not the rich? People may tithe and, they, and think they're doing well when in reality they're, they're not doing well. It's only when we sacrifice that God smiles at us. Again, this is about sacrifice. And churches could do so much more if each member sacrificed not only of their money but their time, their effort, their interests, their service. And we don't often connect the giving of thanks with sacrifice, but it's a biblical concept too. And this is what our verse tells us here. The Israelites were instructed on making particular offerings that were to be the sacrifice of giving according to Leviticus 7.12. So they understood really well what it costs to give thanks to the Lord. Jonah had a heart that was filled with thanksgiving for his deliverance and for being alive and doing well in that fish. While he was in the fish's belly, he couldn't go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. <clears throat> but he says here, notice, he gives his voice as the service to show his gratefulness. He gives his voice as the service to show his gratefulness. And to show that this idea of sacrifice is valid, it's verified, verified by Hosea in chapter 14, verse 2, who says, For we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Sacrifice involves giving. So someone who gives his voice, gives his words and his tongue to praise and to thank God, is basically making a sacrifice with his lips to God. But how little we give of our lips or our words to praise God. But boy, we use it big time to cut others to pieces. But not often for thanksgiving. Our tongue many times is so busy talking about other things to stop and give thanks to God. We need to learn to sacrifice in this area. And to not use our tongues so much for other things and to use them a lot more for giving thanks to the Lord. And Jonah's thanksgiving certainly showed great faith and it gives us a great example of, of when we are to give thanks. Jonah not only thanked the Lord for, for uh, the present blessings, but he also thanked the Lord for future blessings which he hadn't received yet. That's true faith. Thanking in advance for the blessings that you're going to receive. I mean, he was still in the fish. But he was thanking him for his deliverance, as if it already happened. You see, Jonah saw the deliverance coming, and he was quick to thank God. Again, he seemed to thank God in advance. 
Hugh Martin, a minister, said, While your trial still lasts, while there is need of patience, if God gives you warrant for faith, is that not ground for immediate thanksgiving? And then he adds that if our gratitude tarries until the promise is fulfilled, that's nothing but unbelief with its maxim or truth uttered or unexpressed, a maxim not known in the kingdom of Christ. And those are strong words, and they, they accuse us all. But they're true words. How unwilling we are to sacrifice in advance any words for thanksgiving, let alone after the blessing has already come. Thanksgiving can be costly sometimes. So sacrifice might be very obvious in giving thanks. Sometimes we might have to sacrifice respect when we experience ridicule for insisting on giving thanks in public and praying for our food. You know, well, look around, okay, you know, and we say our prayer, okay, you know, thank you, Lord, for our food, and then we move on. Sometimes we may have to sacrifice time to give thanks. We often seem to be in such a hurry all the time that we don't take the time to pray and thank God for our food or anything else. And sometimes we might want to sacrifice our money by giving a thank offering to God for a special blessing. That's not, that's not a usual thing today. But it would be great, a great blessing to God's work if people gave thank offering. So again, does giving thanks cost us anything? And if it doesn't, then we need to get busy, you know, changing that, correcting our practice of thankfulness. So Jonah's renewed dedication for serving the Lord here is seen very clearly when he says from his prayer in the fish's belly, notice in verse 9, I will pay what I have vowed. Notice verse 9, I will pay what I have vowed. And then his third statement, his third declaration is one of sincerity in his commitment to God. Jonah does, Jonah does say exactly what the specific vow or vows were when he's speaking about what he, uh, where, uh, that he's, when he's speaking here. He says, I will fulfill what I have vowed. He doesn't say exactly what the specific vows were, but he says, I will pay what I have vowed. It may have been a vow that, that if he was delivered from this, this terrifying circumstance that he was in, he would return to serving the Lord. But whatever it was now, that he's failed, that he's failed, he's renewing his vow to the Lord. And he meant to be sincere in what he vowed. Vows don't seem to mean anything, or they don't mean anything if they're not sincere. And we need to be sincere in keeping our vows that we make. So many vows are made, yet so many few are kept. Marriage vows, peace treaties, employment vows, contracts, church vows. We all need to be a lot more sincere in honoring our commitments. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5.4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, because it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. The Bible says here that the one who doesn't pay his vow is a fool. And then the last statement or declaration that Jonah makes is the shortest of them all. But man, it is filled with meaning. Notice he says there at the end of verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. The shortest of all, but has a lot of meaning and a lot of doctrine in it. Because the word salvation here is from the Hebrew word that's sometimes translated Joshua. 
And Joshua in the Hebrew becomes, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, Isus or Isus in the New Testament Greek, I-E-S-O-U-S. And it's pronounced Jesu in Latin where we get our English word Jesus. So salvation and Jesus are inseparable. It's a great word. The word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, is Jehovah. And it also speaks of Jesus Christ because the Jehovah of the Old Testament will be found to be Jesus in the New Testament. Isaiah 43, 11, prophecy about Jesus Christ says, I, even I, am the Lord Jehovah, and besides me there is no Savior. I, even I, am the Lord Jesus is saying here. Jehovah. And beside me there is no Savior. In Luke 2, 11, in speaking about Jesus Christ, it says, there is born to you this day <clears throat> in the city of David a Savior. And when the angel told Joseph, this is the name to give Jesus, the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their souls, from their sins. So all of these texts put together point us to the one tremendously important truth, that Jesus Christ is our salvation. This is the message of the gospel, and this message will be found to be the same no matter where it's found in the Bible. What Jonah said here in the Old Testament is the New Testament equal of the New Testament verses like Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul said, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You see, the significant thing about Jonah's statement is that as soon as he made this statement, he said, look what he says in verse 10, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. When Jonah confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, God delivered him. God delivered him. You see, salvation comes to all who receive and confess this great truth about Christ as Savior. When Jonah confessed his deliverance, when he confessed deliverance, it became a fact. So what a perfect picture this is of what happens to every sinner when they confess this truth from their heart. They will immediately be delivered from the condemnation of their sin. So Jonah's four statements show clearly that he's on fire for God again to serve the Lord and to preach his message wherever God would send him. The chastisement for Jonah, it has worked. And that's the purpose of chastisement. God chastises us to get us back onto the path where we belong. Jonah's a changed man now. Jonah's ready to be God's obedient service one, servant once again. Now, chastisement, we know it, it's no fun, and it hurts. It's no fun when we're going through it. It can be very severe, severe as Jonah's situation shows us. But its ultimate purpose is to get you and me back on the right track again. That will justify a lot of the pain that we go through. Because you see, there's no cost too high if it results in getting us back where we belong in a good relationship with the Almighty God. 
Father, we thank you once again for this wonderful story of Jonah. And Father, his confession here, Lord, and being made right because of the goodness of God. And God, how God restored him. And Father, like he's done so many who have fallen short, has chastised us, restored us, and brought us back into his service. So we thank you, Lord. And may we just keep our eyes on you, God. We don't have to go through the chastising, God. But we will. Father, if we try to flee from your presence, if we try to run away from our service to you, God. For you've called us with a loving heart. And you've called us to serve you, Father. Let us be faithful to the end, God. So, Lord, we look to you now. May you just minister to our hearts, God. May we be all that you have called us to be. Lord, may we glorify it in our life and in our words in all that we say and do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.